Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody, it's Reed. Before we get started, I have to say thank you. Thank you to every one of you out there. Not only have we passed 2 million downloads for July, but we've passed 22 million downloads since we started last February. I cannot say thank you enough, but I need to ask you one more favor. Share the podcast with your friends, your family, anybody who you think is interested and dedicated to preserving American democracy. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all you do. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Trig Veals, Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and President of Viking Strategies, LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trigby, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. It's good to be on. And also back with us today is Jeff Timmer, another senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party. Jeff, welcome back. I'm glad to be back, Reed. So, gents, the last time I had both of you on, we did a deep dive on the key 2022 midterm elections, and it wound up being a barn burner, a two-part mega episode, and I have to say the feedback on it was incredible. So I want to bring you both back together for an update on where we are in the lead up to the midterms, the existential threats we face, the remaining primaries, and the other key races that pose the biggest threat to our nation's democracy. So let's get into it. Let's start with what we would call the existential threat races, places like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. You know, as we're recording this, the Michigan primary will be Tuesday, August 2nd. So Trigby, why don't you lead us off from your home state of Wisconsin, and then Jeff, tell us about Michigan, and then we can powwow on Pennsylvania. So in Wisconsin, you know, the question becomes who's Tony Evers going to face? Tony Evers will be the nominee. He's running for re-election. Polls have consistently showed him hovering right around 46, 47 percent, which is right about where his job approval ratings are. The two most likely outcomes are either Tim Michaels, who's a businessman, a road builder. He is the guy with Trump's endorsement. Interestingly, and in some ways, he kind of has more of the traditional establishment of the Republican Party behind him because he's been a big money donor. He ran for the U.S. Senate back, I think, in 2002, 2004, something like that. I mean, that's 20 years ago. Can't these guys find something else to do? Yeah, I mean, I think Michaels has been a guy who's always wanted to run. He's being snagged a little bit based on the fact that, as you'll recall, back 2002, 2004, marriage equality and gay marriage was a big issue. He was pretty adamantly against it. He is holding with that position, which actually now puts him in a place of incongruence with Ron Johnson, who's trying to be the 60th senator supporting it. The other possibility is Rebecca Cleefleisch, who's the lieutenant governor from Scott Walker's era. She's a former television personality. She has been running as sort of the establishment conservative from the Walker era. 
she campaigned hard to get Trump's endorsement, but Trump didn't go with her in part because he was mad that at one point she at least kind of implied, which she's now backed off on, that Joe Biden won in the state. So we should just note, though, that even the quote unquote establishment candidates for this race, the first guy you mentioned is anti-gay marriage. And this one, you know, hinted at the idea that the big lie was ridiculous and then had to go scurrying back. So really the establishment such as it is, is the rump. Establishment is all in on not talking about that Joe Biden won and trying this balancing act between giving tacit support to the notion that the big lie is in fact true and that somehow perhaps even the state legislature could, after the elections with Evers out of the way, recall the electors that were given to Biden. But that's not a thing. Well, you're quoting Robin Voss, and we talked about that on the podcast the other day. Speaker of the State Assembly got a call from Donald Trump basically advocating for that because the state Supreme Court ruled that drop boxes were illegal. Trump is trying to say, well, see, that I really did win Wisconsin because those votes shouldn't count. Of course, they don't know which votes were in drop boxes versus which ones weren't. But yeah, the state of Wisconsin and the Republican Party is really divided over that issue. And it's an existential threat because, quite honestly, none of these guys or gals in Clay Fleisch's case are willing to commit to saying that they'll honor the result in 2020 or 2024 going forward. And then the other piece of Wisconsin that makes it important, and Timmer and I took this into account as we've been rating races, you have a huge Senate race between Ron Johnson and whoever is the eventual nominee, most likely Mandela Barnes. Who's the lieutenant governor. Who's the lieutenant governor and is running as a proud progressive. Well, Ron Johnson is really working hard to moderate his position and appeal to, in part because he doesn't have a primary, right? So he's working hard in the Milwaukee suburbs to be the guy that's standing with marriage equality. He's walked back his position on abortion a little bit. He's said he wants to be the 60th senator voting in favor of birth control. So Ron Johnson is really trying to move to that middle position while Barnes has been running to the left of, for example, Tammy Baldwin. Right. And so this is another one of those interesting states, not unlike Pennsylvania or Georgia, where you have these candidates of the same party who represent different things to different voters who probably, you know, if Mandela Barnes is in Eau Claire, right, then Tony Evers is going to try and be as close to Chicago as he can, right? Like he's going to try and be as clear of him as he can. And I think that Trigby, something that we were talking about was the idea that because Barnes is African-American, that somehow this would drive turnout among African-American votes in Milwaukee, but also for Evers, which I think, frankly, gives pretty short shrift to the concept that African-American voters don't have broader insight into what they're looking for in a candidate. I understand that there might be some additional enthusiasm based on that, but you know, if you're going to be a Bernie Sanders progressive in a state like Wisconsin, I feel like that's an uphill climb. A Democrat has won Wisconsin, Russ Feingold, basically winning two counties by an overwhelming margin, Dane and Milwaukee. But most of the time, what happens is Dane and Milwaukee, like in 2020, Dane and Milwaukee are one total, and they're offset by the Republican totals in the suburbs of Milwaukee and in the Fox River Valley, Green Bay. And then it's outstate that decides the election. 
in 2020, as you'll recall, Reed Lincoln Project went in hard along the Bannon line. You know, we dropped over a million dollars in the last couple of weeks, keeping suburban men primarily in those wow counties, Waukesha, Ozaki, and Washington, keeping them with Biden because Biden wasn't running as a far left progressive socialist. He was running as a moderate center left Democrat against Donald Trump. And those people had just had enough. So now you kind of have the inverse of this. You've got Barnes running as a progressive, Bernie Sanders progressive, endorsed by AOC and others to get through the primary, while Ron Johnson is basically like Nixon used to suggest, running to the middle because he doesn't have a primary. And that's all about holding those voters. If Johnson holds, in this case, it's primarily female voters in those wild counties, if he can hold them, he has a real shot at getting reelected, even though more than half of Wisconsin voters don't like him. Right. So let's move next door, Jeff, and talk a little bit about Michigan. So the Michigan Republican Party has been, to call it a carnival and clown show is a real insult to carnivals and clown shows and to carnies themselves this year. And so now what's happening is we're finally coming up on the the Republican primary for governor. And so there were initially 10 people running in that race. Five of them got thrown out because they didn't have the right ballot qualifications. And so now we have five people left who are all just beating the heck out of each other as Gretchen Whitmer has been governing, I think, but also running a pretty good race. So how do you see the Wolverine state or the Spartan state, as it were? First of all, Michigan is unique among the existential states in that it only has a governor's race. It doesn't have a corresponding U.S. Senate race. So the governor's race is the big fight on the scorecard here. And uh, as you mentioned, the field of contenders has shrunk from 10 candidates that no one knows or gives a shit about to now only five candidates that no one knows or gives a shit about. It is astounding the lack of money and the lack of activity that has been spent in this primary. We've got one candidate who's self-funding to the tune of $10 million. He hasn't spent any more than half of that, but the rest of the field combined hasn't even come close to matching $5 million. So we have a field of gubernatorial candidates who are spending less than a competitive congressional race would typically spend. And so the amount of attention, the amount of enthusiasm seems quite low. And so as we go into these last few days, of the five candidates, there are four who have any path whatsoever to possibly winning. And really none of those four have consistently polled above the lofty number of 20%. So really undecided continues to be more than a third of the vote, more than 40% of the vote in some surveys that have been public. And so it's as really as clear as mud, to use the old cliche, as we go into Tuesday as to what's going to happen. There are two candidates, Tudor Dixon, former right-wing commentator on some right of OANN network out there, former vampire porn actress. Uh, That's a story for another day. But she has garnered what would be the vestiges of the leadership class, the institutional support, chambers of commerce, right to life, those traditional groups. The DeVos family is pouring money to the extent, uh, I guess it's all relative, into a super PAC supporting her. But combined, they've only pumped in about $2.5 million, which is really 
not a lot of money. That's about a thousand gross ratings points of statewide TV. It's not a huge amount of money that's been put in there. But while Dixon has been very careful to suck up to Trump as publicly as she can, she's the only candidate whose name he's ever remembered and said aloud. And they have that playing in in ads, Donald Trump standing in Mar-a-Lago mentioning Tudor Dixon's name. I can't imagine why that is based on your description. Well, I was telling a reporter this earlier today. The thing that's so loud in this race is Donald Trump. As everybody loves to write the stories about, oh, Donald Trump's influence is waning, his hold on the Republican Party is loosening, all the evidence continues to point to the contrary. All the candidates are going out of their way, going through contortions to show how much like Donald Trump they are, how much of his America First agenda they'll implement, how much they believe in the big lie, and how much they want Donald Trump's support. There have been six or seven candidate debates that have been televised or broadcast on radio. There are hour-long affairs with everybody saying, I'm the most like Donald Trump. I love Donald Trump more than you do. You don't love Donald Trump enough. You're not willing to go to jail for Donald Trump like I am. Like because one of the guys running actually was arrested by the FBI for being at the Capitol on January 6th. Right. He's actually looking at going to federal prison in support of Donald Trump. And he's using that as a cudgel against the other candidates saying they're not sufficiently MAGA enough. They weren't willing to put their own freedom on the line for Donald Trump. It is a cult. And this primary is evidence of the fact that what would have been abnormal just four years ago has become normal. And now somebody like Tudor Dixon is being painted as the establishment candidate. John Engler, the longtime Republican governor of Michigan, has endorsed Tudor Dixon. She is so far outside what would have been the mainstream even four years ago. She is a forced birth. If a 10-year-old is you know, raped and becomes pregnant, Tudor Dixon has proudly said how she would force that child to have a baby. That's just so far outside the Republican mainstream, the historic Republican mainstream. But it has become normalized because everybody in this field is a friggin' kook. And it's just all the degree of kookery that each candidate will proudly proclaim, I'm crazier than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. It always becomes that race to the bottom with extremists, right? Like extremists constantly want to out extreme each other. Once you have crazy, it's always a race to more crazy. So what about Governor Whitmer here on the other side? She's running a model campaign for candidates in these other states to look to. She has in a very purple state, one that Trump and Trumpism has taken hold of and made far more competitive than it was in the days before Trump, the way he has shifted the political alignment within the state. She has remained above water on her job approval. She's remained above water and above 50% in ballot tests against candidates, against generic Republicans. She's kind of defied gravity. Uh, Michigan's a state where Joe Biden is, you know, maybe mid-30s at best, 40% on the job approval. So Biden's way underwater. She's running well ahead of Biden, has really gone out of her way to establish her own identity independent of the national Democratic identity. And because she's now been governor for four years with a Republican-led legislature that whole time, She's running ads touting the fact that she's signed hundreds of bipartisan bills into law. She's pushing a income tax cut and rebate. She's using messages that you wouldn't typically identify with Democratic candidates. 
because she has the luxury of no primary and she's got this, you know, shit show going on in the Republican side. So she's been able to really define herself, even though she remains a very emotional target for Republicans. They are so emotionally invested in, in defeating her. And pragmatically, they can't afford, even with lousy candidates at the top of the ticket, they can't afford an implosion at the top of the ticket without feeling those ramifications down ballot, where they do have some chance of winning some contested congressional races, maintaining control of the legislature, though that's very much in doubt after redistricting. And so she's running, I think, the textbook campaign, one that I think Tony Evers in Wisconsin or Josh Shapiro or Katie Hobbs in Arizona, Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, Doug Sisolak in Nevada should be looking to, you know, how has Gretchen Whitmer been able to separate herself from kind of the generic Democratic winds that are blowing nationally. You look at Sisolak, who's polling in the mid-40s. He's consistently ahead of Lombardo, his opponent, but really he's not out of that danger territory. He's at 40, when you're 43% as the incumbent, that's some sketchy territory. Whitmer at 49 to 55% is in a much safer territory, even though you could argue that Michigan is a much more purple state even than Nevada. So how has Gretchen Whitmer been able to do that? She's really gone out of her way for four years to establish that own identity independent of the generic Democrat. She has leaned into a lot of the Republican criticism of her handling of pandemic and and COVID mitigation measures. She really has never apologized or changed course despite any of their criticism. She's leaned into it and been rewarded by a majority of Michigan voters, including some Republicans making up that majority, who say Gretchen Whitmer's doing a good job. And, uh, you know, there's this shit show going on on the Republican side. And so the test for the pro-democracy forces in Michigan and in other states is if you get a Gretchen Whitmer who is able to separate themselves, how can you translate that into success down ballot as you go into attorney general or secretary of state or congressional? or legislative races? How do you keep that coalition together? That's something that Democrats haven't quite been able to figure out in most of these states yet. Jeff, you said one thing that MAGA has taken hold in Michigan and made it more competitive, which I think most people would think, oh, well, if MAGA's taken hold, it would be less competitive. But the reason I want to bring that up is because in one of the key congressional districts there, I believe outside of Grand Rapids, There's been a lot of news lately that the Democrats, the Democratic Party, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is boosting of the two Republican candidates in that race. Peter Mayer or Meyer is the Republican incumbent, one of 10 Republican members of Congress to vote to impeach Donald Trump. And then there's a MAGA counterpart and the DCCC, the Democrats have been going out of their way to boost the MAGA candidate with the idea, okay. If we can beat Meyer, the more moderate, who's on paper tougher in the general, then we can get somebody who's more theoretically more beatable in November. One, my fear is that the Democrats are playing with fire. Two, I don't think that they're good enough as a political movement strategically to pull that off. But three, sometimes, Jeff, it feels like it's 2015 all over again. Oh, well, they're the crazier ones, so they can't win, as opposed to saying like, well, you know, maybe we should leave well enough alone because, you know, we're getting involved in somebody else's chili here, and it very well could be that the MAGA guy wins. That is a very real risk. The DCCC is attacking Pete Meyer 
And the Democrat Governors Association is up with a $2 million buy in the last week against Tudor Dixon on the Republican side. So they are also trying to sink her. They just see her as the potentially most competitive Republican against Whitmer. So both of those organizations, the DGA and the DCCC, have made the very partisan calculation that, look, you know, we're Democrats. We're not a pro-democracy organization. We're a pro-democratic organization. So they're looking at the Meyer Congressional District as one he won in an old district before redistricting that was plus three for Trump. His new district is plus nine for Biden. So it's a swing of 12 points. It's become a decidedly more Democratic district. And they've decided they're going all in. They think that the impeachment vote is enough capital likely for Meyer to probably lose that even against an underfunded mega opponent who's running a fairly shitty campaign. He's probably still likely to win, but they've made the calculation that they're going to assist that. Hopefully it doesn't turn out to bite them in the ass that this Gibbs, the MAGA candidate, the election denier wins and then stuns the political world in November by holding that Republican seat. The same thing could happen where, you know, one of these crazies, uh, the guy who got arrested, Ryan Kelly on the governor's race, Garrett Saldano, one of your favorites in the race. The roided up chiropractor. Yeah, these guys who are, you know, now they're not just MAGA, they're the ultra MAGA candidates. That's how they set themselves apart, where one of them wins and becomes governor. It sounds crazy. It's easy to look at these guys and say, oh, they're too crazy to win, except when they do. You've got these Doug Mastriano types who are running everywhere. Many of them are likely to win nominations in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Arizona, in Nevada. And I don't think we can just say, oh, they won't win in November. They might win in some of these states. We might have Doug Mastriano or ultra mega governors in some of these existential states as we head into 2024. And that's a very serious risk. The Democrats didn't ask us for advice in Uh, this one. Well, they rarely do. Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough when you're running a political party organization or a caucus organization to orchestrate primaries within your own party. That's been my experience over decades. I can't imagine the track record is going to be much better if you're trying to do it in the other side's primary. Look at how McConnell has kind of failed at that this cycle. It takes a very special politician to be able to pull it off in your own primary. And McConnell has in the past. Harry Reid was really good at it. You know, Claire McCaskill did a little bit of that. And Al D'Amato used to do it. But you're talking about pretty rare politicians who have pulled it off successfully. And I'm not sure the DGA of 2022 or the DCCC, no offense to them, are that. You know, as I was listening to Jeff talk about what Whitmer's doing, I was thinking back and we're all old enough to remember when Tom Ridge and John Engler and Tommy Thompson and all these guys started getting elected. And they had Democratic state legislatures because all these states had been held by Democrats up through most of the 80s and into the early 90s. Those guys got elected governor. They stayed true to their core values, but they figured out ways to co-opt and bring them in. And if Democrats were smart, and it's why governors leading from states is a far better way to produce your bench than these national Washington guys. People like Ridge and Engler and Tommy, eventually they took over those state legislatures. And by being incremental and being smart 
and doing things like Whitmer's doing with, I'm going to take the tax cut issue off the table, but I'm going to draw a line on the repeal of Roe in the state because that's a winner for me to have that fight with these Republicans, right? That's how you build sustainable long-term majorities. That is how Republicans did that, leading in through George W. Bush and taking over Congress and all the rest. And the truth of the matter is, you know, Donald Trump is an example of a Republican Party that got almost all of what they wanted. It's like Star Wars. The rebels became the empire and then they completely overreached and went crazy. Yeah. The problem is in that analogy, the Democrats fight like Ewoks. I mean, but, that, <laughs> but maybe that's they the, are. That's the wrong. That's the wrong uh, they fight like uh, Jar Jar Binks. Or stormtroopers. Or stormtroopers. <laughs> can't shoot straight. But when you're nominating, when you think that the path is we're going to nominate the most progressive person that we possibly can, in one of those states, right? Because Ron Johnson is an anathema, but it's kind of a center-right state. And you give them the ability to co-opt pieces of their coalition, to have the coalition and the insanity. That's how you don't win in these places and build. And Whitmer is showing the way. It would be nice if Evers and Sisolak or Katie Hobbs and Shapiro, who want to become that, would take that lesson. Because The thing you didn't mention, Jeff, is, you know, Whitmer might flip. Is it the state senate or the state assembly? Both. I mean, both are are very real possibilities, especially as they've got some very big primaries in a lot of key seats where Donald Trump has come in and endorsed candidates for the state legislature, where they're going to get these ultra mega folks winning in what would be very purple legislative districts where the control will be decided. They're going to have these horse-paced, eating, urine-drinking candidates as their standard bearer in seats that are these kind of high-income, high-education suburban districts where they're going to have these just knuckle-dragging candidates against, you know, very generic Democrats. You know, people still are talking about red wave and economic factors that are continuing to hinder Democrats, bolster Republicans. Yet in a state like Michigan, you're going to have Gretchen Whitmer likely the favorite for re-election all the way through the fall. She's likely to be re-elected. The Democrats are more than holding their own right now in the other statewide offices where they have incumbents, people like Alyssa Slotkin, Dan Kildee. They could pick up a seat in Michigan in that Grand Rapids seat if the MAGA guy wins. And you could see the Democrats flipping a chamber or getting both chambers for the first time in more than 40 years, which would be historic. Which is crazy, too, considering how how important organized labor was there even 40 years ago. People who pay attention to the national politics, the uh, uh, presidential politics of Michigan, would be astounded at how red Michigan has been in Lansing over that time. And the state legislature has been dominated by Republicans going back to the 1980s. And I think that also speaks to a massive cultural divide between the two parties, both how they're seen by the outside and how they see themselves. Yeah. And you were saying what I had said earlier about Trump and MAGA's making Michigan more of a purple state than it had been prior to Trump. Part of that comes from the economic and education divide that drives Trumpism. The lower educated, working class, what would have been historic labor or one generation off from labor in kind of the older ring suburbs around Detroit and some of the other major industrial cities, areas that I've been 
working campaigns in Michigan since the 80s and areas that I have no experience in because they've been so historically Democratic are now areas that vote for Trump and where Republicans are competing in legislative seats because of that kind of dynamic, that class and education shift with realignment within the electorate. Now we have those more educated, higher income areas like around Grand Rapids, uh, Oakland County, where Republicans used to dominate the old country club, Chamber of Commerce Republicans have now become behavioral Democrats for the most part. All right. So guys, let's continue our trip through the existential states and let's head south, southeast towards Pennsylvania. Obviously, the primary happened there a couple of months ago. In the Senate race, we've got John Fetterman versus Dr. Oz. John Fetterman, latest survey, Trigby had him up nine. Fetterman, recovering from a stroke that he had just prior to the primary, has been off the road. But you can see this is where, you know, the difference between a good campaign and a bad campaign, which is his campaign is really a terrific group of people who, much like we did in 20, really understands the value of short form, punchy social media, keeping in your opponent's head and keeping them on their heels, making them flail around. That's what his social media, his Twitter feed has been doing. He and his wife have been doing, right? Like, you know, congratulations, Dr. Oz. Have a happy New Jersey day, right? Do you even know how to pump your own gas, right? Like, dear New Jersey governor, can you come get your guy? Like, he needs to come home, right? All of this stuff, which for a guy like Oz, who has probably sat in TV studios for the last 25 or 30 years, being the A number one guy, right, to now be belittled on a daily basis by somebody who probably Oz doesn't believe is qualified to hold his briefcase, I think is a fascinating trend. I think also it shows that Trump is important in primaries because without Trump, Oz isn't there, but it's not necessarily enough to fix a candidate's significant shortcomings, which Oz clearly has. Fetterman is running. He isn't apologizing for who he is. He's not out on the campaign trail, but he's running as who he is and they are doing a good job with the New Jersey thing. I don't know if you guys saw that Stevie Van Zant, Bruce Springsteen's guitarist, you know, is just going after Oz about how great it would be to have somebody from New Jersey, you know, like a third senator and all this stuff. I'm sure before it's over, they'll probably have the boss offering to come in and do a New Jersey concert for him in Philly. My favorite was Oz just can't win social media. He tries to get out there and he shows himself in a Philadelphia Eagles jersey, right? So the Fetterman campaign comes back at him. Is that a New Jersey? Question mark. <laughs> it was just too easy for them. But they're so you're right. They're so good at it. And if I'm the National Democrats, I don't even want Fetterman to necessarily get back out on the campaign trail. He's doing just fine where he is right now. No, look, he's run. He's running the best front porch campaign since James Garfield. Right. Like, leave him there. In some ways, him running a front porch campaign against Oz probably is the best place that he can be. Although I think the one thing that we should probably make sure that people understand, the reason we call these existential threats, and Pennsylvania more than any other one gets to the heart of this, if Doug Mastriano is elected governor of Pennsylvania, it is nearly impossible for us to have a presidential election with any meaning in 2024 when he is not willing to honor the results of what people in Pennsylvania do. Because the truth of the matter is, it becomes almost impossible for a Democrat to get elected without winning Pennsylvania, it's really hard for a Republican. Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin are the key swing states. And if you have people who in those three states as governor, and in Pennsylvania, 
Not only do you have the governor, but you get to appoint the secretary of state if you are governor. If Doug Mastriano is doing that and Doug Mastriano wins, democracy is in probably in as great a peril as it was during the 148 minutes that Liz Cheney and Kinsinger and those guys were talking about. Maybe more. And it will be for two years. So we've got Doug Mastriano, the Republican nominee, another Trump endorsee running against Josh Shapiro, the state's attorney general. Shapiro is up three or four in surveys, right? Not enough, I don't think, in and of itself to be successful. But again, sometimes with Mastriano, right after he was nominated, right, the RGA, the Republican Governors Association, put out a very tepid statement. Now they're in the race because they see it's closer than we thought. And I think, Jeff, to your point about Michigan, I think Pennsylvania is another one of those sort of hard crystallized ultra MAGA states too. Maybe Ohio, right? Maybe it's just that whole swath of the upper Midwest. And I feel like a little bit like with Mastriano, it's a little bit like 2015, like we talked about, which is, oh, well, he can't win. He's too crazy. And what we're seeing is the other thing that I think we mentioned the last time we were all together was that for a guy like Mastriano, you know, whether or not it was the fact that he was at the Capitol on January 6th, that, you know, a lot of these anti-Semitic statements that are now coming out about what he said, now he's brought on a consultant who runs this gab thing, who literally made an anti-Semitic remark like this week, that he'll never moderate. He'll always double and triple down on the crazy because that's who he is. But that doesn't mean he can't win. True. I know that's one of the fears that many of these Democratic campaigns have where they're uh, the front runners, Josh Shapiro, Gretchen Whitmer, Evers, is that people start discounting the greater pro-democracy world as they're looking at this saying, okay, Doug Mastriano can't win. Ryan Kelly, he's not going to be governor, uh, so we're going to take our money and put it somewhere else. They're worried about apathy. They're worried about the optics working against them, that their candidates appear too strong and people don't take the threat seriously enough. And I think that is a very real prospect. We can't discount the intense polarization, how when John Engler or Tommy Thompson won their third terms, they you know, had probably 25, 30-point margins over the Democrats in those years. Tommy got 72%. Yeah, Engler got 68%. And those are ridiculous numbers. Like the popular kid doesn't win that for school president. Right. But right now, anybody who the Republicans nominate in these states is guaranteed 45% of the vote. And it's can they inch and claw their way to that last four or 5% to put them over the top? And the answer is maybe because, you know, Democrat enthusiasm is really high right now and it's really high post Dobbs and, you know, Roe being overturned. So Democrat enthusiasm is approaching 10 on that 10 scale, but Republican enthusiasm is about 12. And that's still something that has to be overcome. The Republicans are going to vote in November, and we have to make sure, we being the pro-democracy Americans, that we do too. I want to say one thing about the enthusiasm piece, Jeff, because this is a conversation that the three of us had in Detroit back in, I think, December, and a conversation I had just last week with a couple of leaders of the African-American movement in Philadelphia. And the main takeaway, in fact, that one of them said was, Reed, no one should take anything for granted about what's going to happen in Philadelphia in November. And that scares the hell out of me, to be honest with you. I mean, neither Fetterman nor Oz are a natural fit for the black constituency, I don't think. Shapiro is running with an African-American as his lieutenant governor nominee, and Mastriano should be anathema to them, just given the nature of who he is and what he says, and frankly, even where he comes from. 
But if that's what two people who know the city and its politics intimately are saying in late July, I'm concerned. I worry about it in Milwaukee. I worry about it a little less, but I worry about it in Detroit. I mean, the three of us had a conversation in Detroit and the conversation you had in Philly. I think it's a valid concern. And I think there are some places where, quite honestly, the Republicans are making some inroads with the African-American community, which tends to be more religious in parts of it than the white community. And I think that's one thing that we should, for our listeners, understand is that the strength of the Democratic coalition is its diversity. I believe that. But the strength in that diversity comes from the idea that you understand that it's not just racial diversity. And, you know, here's three white guys talking about this, so maybe I'm out over my skis. But it seems to me, anyway, that the African-American, the Latino communities, for sure, tend to be more culturally conservative than your average, you know, East Coast, West Coast Democrat, even suburban white Democrat, probably. As you know, Reed, and you, you went and watched this, you know, I've worked on a project in 2015 and 16 through 2020 where we were doing focus groups all over the country looking at the rise of populist nationalism and progressive socialism. And the day that I knew that Hillary Clinton was in trouble, she had been in Raleigh-Durham the day before, and we were going into Raleigh-Durham and doing an African-American group. And having worked in Republican politics, I had never actually seen an African-American focus group. And I got done with it, and I thought every American should see this, but I knew Hillary Clinton was in trouble because they started talking about it. It was with an organization, a British organization, so a British focus group. They started talking about how all Hillary Clinton had talked about the day before was what they referred to as rich white people issues. She had come in, and she talked climate change. She talked about a million problems that weren't the problems that they were facing on a day-to-day -day basis. And in fact, there were two of them in there that were considering voting for Donald Trump, even though the others all thought that Donald Trump might be kind of racist. So Democrats have a real challenge with that, both in terms of getting African-Americans to have a reason to go and vote. And simultaneously, they need to speak in ways that really get to the issues that they care about, which are much more personalized and localized, policing, education, those kinds of things. You know, one of the other interesting pieces, Jeff, and, and you've got college-age kids, I asked about what about younger voters? And we've heard this from voters, you know, across the spectrum, age, demographics, whatever. But what they told me was they don't believe anybody. They are more progressive probably than older voters, but not surprisingly. But, you know, and I remember, and this is, of course, anecdotal, that young woman right after Dobbs was announced who, you know, took to TikTok to say, Democrats, you had 40 years to fix this and you never did it. Now, whether or not that's true is sort of immaterial. If it leads to a broad-based apathy or even antipathy for the party to which they should belong, that also, I think, presents a real electoral issue. Absolutely. I mean, then the math doesn't work. I mean, if you have any erosion at all among Black or Latino Hispanic voters, and you have any real erosion among the turnout levels of younger voters, then the math gets very hinky and nearly impossible for Democrats. And that's how a Doug Mastriano wins. Josh Sapiro is likely to get more than 90% of the black vote in Philadelphia. Two things are going to matter, though. If he gets 95% of the black vote in Philadelphia and the raw number of turnout in Philadelphia, 
that marginal difference? Does he get 90 or 95? 95% of what? Of what? And so those two things do matter. They really do matter. And it's not that a lot of these minority or even younger voters are going to suddenly say, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to side with Doug Mastriano now. He's my guy and, you know, and, and Dr. Oz. They're just saying, screw it. I'm not going to go vote. Right. And we heard that, too. Right. Which is they know what they get with Republicans. They don't want that. But year in, year out, the sort of being taken for granted, I think, is catching up. Yeah. In some of these states, Nevada, Arizona, more in particular, where the Latino vote is much higher, there's a very real erosion that is taking place, especially among younger Latino men who are very susceptible to the America First message, to a lot of the Republican programming. And we are seeing a real change an alignment there with younger Hispanic men. All right. So you guys are all hearing this on Monday, August 1st, but tomorrow we've already talked about Michigan extensively, but here are the other primaries that will take place tomorrow, guys. Arizona, Kansas, Missouri, and Washington. Now, Arizona is important. It's like existential light, right? Which is a Democrat can win without Arizona, but if Carrie Lake wins in the Republican primary for governor against Karen Robson, you know, she makes Trump look like a fake, right? Like a poser. And she's already talking, Jeff, about the fact that like, well, you know, if I lose, it's because they stole it. If I lose, it's because they stole it. They put out fake polling so they can set up the big lie and then they're going to have stolen it from me. Yeah, it's really interesting watching that dynamic there. Lake, by all accounts, is the favorite in the race likely to beat Robeson, the establishment choice. It's not guaranteed, but the dynamic that we could see there is even if Robeson wins, it's likely to be very close and there could be some definite wound licking that goes on with the Carrie Lake ultra mega side who it's going to be hard to bring that necessary coalition to win in November. There's going to be some deft work that needs to be done on the Republican side. I'm not saying that ropes and winning means that the Democrats have a better chance of picking up that seat, but it doesn't completely take away Katie Hobbs' chance to flip that seat into the Democratic column. Well, and I would say that, you know, Trigby, just something that Jeff touched on was that given how politically insane Carrie Lake is, that if she loses by a little or by a lot, first, she will not concede quickly. Second, if and when she finally does, she will never stop saying it was stolen. And she very well could tell her people, don't participate. This is a scam election. This is a rigged game. Don't participate. Don't do it. And like we could see, you know, Trump doing with like a Brian Kemp in Georgia, a bunch of those ultra magas just stay home and give Katie Hobbs a window that might otherwise not exist. And that's one of these really weird dynamics that we're dealing with now, which is you have this hyper radicalized portion of, of one major party who are nihilistic, right? If you're not their person, they don't care. They want one of two things, the person they love or the person they hate, but they don't want the person they don't feel anything about. Right. I think certainly if Lake loses, she's going to go all in that Ducey stole it from her. Remember, because Ducey has gone pretty much all in for Robson at this point. The other thing you got to remember about Ducey is Ducey's chair of the RGA. Now, what does Ducey do after going that hard at Carrie Lake and having done the right thing in 2020? How would he reconcile himself endorsing Carrie Lake if she wins, given 
that he's gone after as hard as he has. Now, it's his job as chair of the RGA to get Republicans elected, and yet he knows that Carrie Lake is completely off her rocker. So, you know, if Carrie Lake loses, she's going to say that those guys cheated. If Lake wins, I don't know how Ducey reconciles that. Although, to your point, Ducey and our buddy Rexrode, you know, they said the right things about Mastriano after Mastriano won the primary. But we called this on this show when you and I were talking about it, that they were going to creep back. And shame on Ducey and Rexrode for doing that. And quite frankly, if Carrie Lake wins and Ducey comes out and endorses Carrie Lake, like that's a big story because it will show how even really good people in the Republican Party become completely corrupted and are willing to sacrifice themselves completely, even the ones who kind of stood up to Trump. Well, Trigvi, so far, there's only literally two people on the list well, that yeah. have done that. <laughs> literally two in the entire freaking country. So <laughs> we shouldn't count on anything. Well, but it doesn't help when Peter Meyer, who did vote for impeachment, is got a bunch of ads being run by the DCCC and Kinzinger got redistricted out by the Democrats. Like, what the hell are they doing? Well, but that's again, this is the difference between, as you say, and you and Maya talk about every week. It's the difference between the game that everybody's used to and the game we're in, that these things matter. That Liz, you know, we'll get to her in a second. She's got a primary here and later in the month, and Kinzinger's gone, right? They intentionally drew his district out, and that's fine. Like, that's what they did. But, you know, it was sort of a, well, I guess I'll do what I have to do, but that's neither here nor there. Okay. The other side of Arizona here is the United States Senate race. So, Mark Kelly's the incumbent senator, Democrat, astronaut, husband of Gabby Giffords. Surveys show him up. Not comfortably, but in a fairly healthy six, eight points against whoever the Republican nominee is. Donald Trump has endorsed Blake Masters, who is this sort of fanboy of Peter Thiel. So he's all in on the big lie. He's all in on guns. He's all in on all of this stuff. But he's also so far out there, Jeff, that he's almost a caricature of himself. Yes, he's become that. I mean, we've got these kind of cartoon characters running in lots of states, but it's working. He's outside the margin of error consistently in polls over the last month. He's taken the lead. It seems real. It seems like it's enough to get him through. And you look at somebody like Mark Kelly, who kind of is this larger-than-life action figure. You know, he was a astronaut and the husband of Gabby Giffords, and he's led this fight for gun safety, and he's done all these wild things. And you think, okay, he's got a $25 million war chest, and the Republican Party is divided. This all seems great until these kooks start winning in November. Blake Masters wins a Senate race. Doug Mastriano wins a governor's race. We have a situation where when you go state by state and you talk candidate by candidate, race by race, all the dynamics seem to be favoring the normal sane candidates, whether it's Mark Kelly or Shapiro or Gretchen Whitmer or Tony Evers. But it's not realistic as we look at our experience in elections, you know, as students of election history, to think that the Democrats can expect to run the table on all of these races. They might be able to win enough of these to hold on to the U.S. Senate. The math, when you look at the competitive races, becomes very hard for them to hold the U.S. House, no matter how much the environment may have neutralized. No longer decidedly in Republicans' favor, maybe back to neutral right now. It's still in a neutral environment very hard for them to win. 
and then to run the table on all of these governor's races in these existential states. If that's where we end up in November, great. Democracy's had a, a wonderful night. But I think we need to be realistic and temper people's expectations for like, we need to be prepared that things are going to go sideways in some of these places. They always do. Well, they have since 2001. So why should we expect anything is going to be different now? Right. And so whether it's uh, Mark Kelly versus Blake Masters, you think, okay, that should be a easy reelect at the end of the day. Well, it is until it isn't. I guess my admonition here is we can't assume that because the Republicans are nominating these Frankenstein monster candidates, these cartoon cutouts of ultra magas, that they're going to lose these elections, that they're not going to be taken seriously in these races. There is a normalcy bias that kind of works its way in. They'll be looked at by most voters who don't live and breathe this stuff as legitimate contenders. And I think we need to take seriously the threat that these candidates pose. All right. So, guys, I want to list off the rest of the primaries here in August. Tomorrow, we, we mentioned Arizona, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, Washington. August 4th is Tennessee. August 9th, Connecticut, Minnesota, Vermont, Wisconsin. August 13th, Hawaii. August 16th, Alaska. I think Sarah Palin running up there again. And then, obviously, also Wyoming, where Liz Cheney is facing a primary challenge from not one, but four different ultra-maga people. And then August 23rd, Florida and New York. So a lot of big states here, guys, right as we start to hit the fall stride. All right. So, guys, let's leave it there for today. And everybody out there, this concludes the first part of our conversation with Lincoln Project Senior Advisors Trigvi Olson and Jeff Timmer. Until next time, you can follow Trigvi on Twitter at Trigvi Olson and follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Timmer. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for part two of our conversation. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.